Well, last week we talked about uh, what it means to bear the image a little more. This profound, um, powerful word about what it means to be human. This incredibly uh, dignifying word about what it means to be human. And we pressed into those couple of places in the scripture where we actually read that, that designation for humanity, right? So we looked at Genesis 1 and we looked at Psalm 8. And we saw there the idea that we, in fact, are here to bear the image of God, that there's meant to be a certain kind of divine proximity between our life and God's, a certain kind of divine resemblance in our life, that when we act on the world, it's supposed to look a little bit like the way that God acts on the world. Uh, we saw this word that's in there that shows up in those couple of places. So I know this is a bit of review if you were here last week, but there's this word, rada, and because it's gross outside and we need help waking up, let's try saying it on three again. One, two, three. 9 or 8.45 was way stronger and they were way fewer than you. Let's try it again. Rada on three. One, two, three. Rada. Excellent. Yeah, Rada, uh, which means to rule, to be a ruler. This is actually the language that shows up in the scripture when it talks about us bearing the image of God. Now, I know you may not feel like a ruler today. Like if you had kids that you were getting to church this morning, you may not feel very empowered right now. I get that. Uh, but this is actually part of what the scripture means when it says we bear the image, that we have some kind of rule, which means we have some kind of power in the world, right? <clears throat> you may not feel very powerful. You may have been told that you are not powerful. You may have had experiences that, that told you you were something other than powerful, but you have a body, you have a voice, you have something that you can use to act on the world in some kind of way, which begs questions about what do we do with our power and who's flourishing because we have power, and what happens when power gets used in a way that accrues some kind of benefit for us, like perks, and perks aren't necessarily a bad thing, but we better think clearly about perks. So we talked through all of that last week, um, because perks aren't necessarily a bad thing, but it may be that in laying down your perks, your benefits, the, the good things that have accrued to you, you may actually be on the verge of your greatest act of power for the flourishing of others in this world, which is exactly what we see in Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, uh, but let's go of all of that, uh, that he may give his life in the greatest act of power for the flourishing of the world. Now, um, there's that grasping thing that Jesus refuses to do, and I actually want to press further into the grasping today. Uh, if we're going to talk about the image of God, we need to talk about what, what it is that distracts us from it, what it is that breaks it within us, what it is that buries it, and how it is that we find ourselves acting in the world in a way that doesn't look like God and doesn't lead to the flourishing of the world. We need to talk a little bit about healing, and we need to talk about how this shows up in actual human stories. And so to do that, I want to look at one of the very human stories in the scripture that I find um, haunting and beautiful. It's the story of a man named Jacob, that shows up in the first uh, book of the scriptures, the book called Genesis. And I gotta tell you guys, I remember studying this story in grad school, and I was uh, in this very, very like dull cinder block classroom at Notre Dame with a professor who's brilliant, who came from Harvard, but he would stand with his back against the chalkboard and he would talk like this for about three hours and he'd talk pretty quickly and he would talk not very loudly. And the thing about him talking for three hours is I had class every day for three hours, five days a week for six weeks that summer and it was really, really hard to get through, especially because I'd read eight books the night before and I was really, really tired and he would talk like this. And the thing is, even when he talked like this, I almost wept <laughs> in class one day when we read this story. Um, because it's profoundly human and God shows up in a, a very real way in it. So I wanna take us into this because we're looking for what it looks like when we look like God in the world. We're looking for the grasping 
and the letting go and how those things happen and what happens when they happen. So let's, uh, let's just sort of move through this story together. Uh, this is in the book of Genesis chapter 25. Uh, and by the way, um, we're going to sort of give a quick read, uh, but you should totally sit with this story for a bit this week. Uh, we've got Bibles right over there if you want to take one home. They're nice Bibles. They've got study notes so you can understand some things you may not understand. So just feel free to grab one from the shelf when you leave today if you want. Uh, but let's jump in. You guys ready? I don't care. <laughs> this is the story of Jacob, but it begins with his father, Isaac, whose wife became pregnant. Uh, and when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau, which uh, seems to mean hairy in the Hebrew. That's great. And then after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, which literally means heel grabber in Hebrew. And parents, if you think that you've done a bad job naming your kids, just relax a little bit. Although if there's anyone named Jacob in the room, maybe that one went a little astray, right? So uh, there's a peculiar detail here that Jacob is the second one born of the twins, right? And he comes out grabbing the heel. Now the peculiar details, especially in the biographies of characters in scripture, matter a lot. They're a way of describing way more than a, an, a, an event that happened. They're a way of naming a, an important truth like in the heart of this person, something that you would expect to see in the biography of this person. Like a really dumb but totally accurate example would be if we told the story of Jay being born, and we said that, you know, his father and his mother uh, conceived a child, and uh, she was pregnant, and then she had Jason, and as he came out of the womb, you know, the doctor tried throwing a little baseball to baby Jason, and he dropped it. And that would foretell my lifelong inability to be athletic in any way, right? Like, that would just sort of be a little hint that tells you where my story is going. This is a little hint that tells you where his story is going. Look for the grasping all over this guy's life. It shows up very quickly. I'm just three sentences later, although at this point in the story, he's grown up. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That was why he was also called Edom. Don't worry about that. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. That is an ambitious grab. The birthright is his right to the first inheritance, the big inheritance from the family as the first son. Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. That is a grab. That is a greedy, craving grab that he has just offered out there in the world. Side note, this is just for my own edification. My brother and I grew up uh, with a little bit of conflict. He's older than me, and he would whisper to me at times uh, when we were not quite as biblically literate as I am today. He would say, well, you know what, Jason? In the Bible, the older son gets all the things from the parents, so when mom and dad die, I'm taking the piano, and I'm not even going to play it, but I'm taking it so you can't have it. <laughs> but little did he know that I would have a microphone later in my life, and little did I know that in Scripture, that whole structure actually gets usurped more often than not. But there's a birthright thing here where Esau, the older son, expects to sort of have the lion's share of the father's inheritance. And, and, and Jacob makes a grab for it. Right there in the story, there's some grasping. There's more grasping a little while later. Uh, so in chapter 27, when Isaac, Jacob's father, was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. And Isaac said, I'm now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. 
Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So Jacob has already grabbed the birthright uh, inheritance from Esau, but there's one thing left for Esau, which is the blessing of his father. And I know this is kind of a strange thing for people in 2018 to understand, but for a father to give his blessing in this story is a profound and sacred, and there's a sense that the word spoken by the father is binding somehow. That the word spoken by the father has some, some weight to it that goes far beyond like breath coming out of your lips. There's something substantial to it. And so uh, Isaac wants to give Esau the blessing. But remember, Jacob is a grabber. Uh, Jacob's mom, Rebekah, overhears the fact that Isaac is trying to bless Esau. And so Rebekah tells Jacob, here's what I want you to do. We're going to go grab an animal. We're going to kill it. You're going to bring it to your father. And I'm going to dress you up in hairy clothes so that you can deceive your father and you can grab the blessing. And Jacob says, sure. Uh, It goes like this, uh, just a little while later in the story. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, lies Jacob. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. And so he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. By the way, a little while later, uh, Esau shows up to get the blessing that he thought was coming to him and uh, finds out that the blessing, too, has been grabbed by Jacob, and he cries out in lament. This clearly means something to these guys. Now, a couple of observations. Um, Jacob is doing this grabbing thing, this taking thing, this craving thing seems to be driving him. It seems to be at the center of him, like a, like a fear or an insecurity or an awareness or a, uh, an avarice, a, a lustfulness. A, it's like taking, taking, taking. And I can't help but wonder, um, and by the way, there's moments in the story we'll see in a moment where the, the face or the image of God shows up in this story. I can't help but wonder if there's something inside Jacob that's not unlike the thing inside us that thinks to be like God is to feel like God, and we think to feel like God, we need to shore up our insecurities, we need to wrap ourselves in protection and resources, we need to make ourselves safe, we need to feel whole. Like maybe there's something within us that thinks to be like God is to feel like God, and to feel like God is to grab, to take, to get the things around us and in us that we think will like lift us up, affirm us, will give us what we need. This plays out all the time. So you're in a marriage, and you can't figure out why it's not working, but there's this craving thing inside you that needs to feel whole, and it doesn't feel whole, and so you're expecting your spouse to fix that, and they can't, by the way. Or you're at your workplace, and uh, you, you try to play the nice guy game, but the fact is you're kind of a, an alpha out there, and you are taking and taking and taking, because when you get there, you're there to make yourself feel a little bit like God, and you would have never used those words for it, But we want to feel a little bit like God, and so we grab and we take. 
This shows up in friendships. This shows up in religion. This shows up in church. This shows up all around our world. There's something within us that wants to feel like God. It's like it's one degree off from being like God, but it's a world apart, right? And wanting to feel safe, wanting to feel secure, wanting to feel whole, wanting to feel put back together, we just grab and take and grab and take, and Jacob is grabbing and taking. And watch what happens. It's not just grabbing, but the grabbing leads to warring. It leads to conflict, right? In fact, right after the moment that Jacob steals the blessing from the father after already having grabbed the birthright, Jacob runs away because he realizes there's something between him and Esau that seems uh, difficult now, right? And it's not uh, the first time or the last time that we've seen a human story where the grabbing leads to warring, that the needing, that the craving, that the way that we are trying to drag what we need into our lives leads to some kind of conflict or warring in the world. If you want to do a deep dive on this, uh, read a theologian named Rene Girard who does a sort of masterful analysis of the ways that we develop our wants and the ways that those wants compete in the world and the way that competition leads to violence and then what's going on in Jesus. But that's... um, that's a whole lecture sometime. Uh, but we have these craving needs, these grabbing ways in the world, and the grabbing leads to warring, and it's all over Jacob's story. And he might want to feel like God, but he doesn't look very much like God when he's doing it. Neither do we. Now, it's interesting. Uh, there's a turn in Jacob's life. He looks quite different a little while later. We go from all of this uh, grabbing and warring to another scene with him and his brother uh, much later uh, in their life. So Jacob discovers that he's going to have a run-in with the brother that he's been running from for quite a while. And fearing the warring that he has created, he, uh, he decides to send a bunch of gifts ahead of him, like servants and herds and flocks, to appease his brother who has every reason to just be absolutely livid with Jacob. And so what begins as an appeasement turns into a moment of generosity and reconciliation that we read about, like right here uh, in chapter 33. So Esau asks, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met that you sent my way? And Jacob says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. But Esau said, I've already had plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now listen to this. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that has been brought to you, for God has been gracious to me. Listen, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now before you think, oh, Jacob finally grabbed enough to satisfy himself, just ask yourself if you've ever seen anyone who has that grabbing thing in life or if you've ever had that in yourself and ask yourself, was there ever enough to satisfy as long as that was the center that you were living out of? The answer is no. When we are living out of that craving, grabbing place inside us, there's never enough to satisfy. So the fact that he says, I have all I need, doesn't mean his herds got big enough, his flocks grew enough, his servants were, 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 were many enough. It means something shifted inside him that he was no longer operating from that place. And that begs the question, what happened? And there's a moment in his story uh, just a little bit before this. It's a peculiar, um, haunting moment that I've sat with for a long time. And, um, well, let's, let's just sort of hear this. There's this moment where Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip 
so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered, what is your name? Heel grabber. What is your name? Craver. What is your name? Need. What is your name? Incomplete. What is your name? Greed. What is your name? I need more. I need more. I need more. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. You will no longer be named grabber, taker, craver. But Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? But then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, uh, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now, we could sit with that story for a long time, um, but the name Israel actually literally translates wrestled with God. Did you know that the the name of the people around whom this story is written is wrestles with God? The name isn't um, has God figured out. (laughs) The name of the people around whom this story is written is not have all the answers about God. The name um, of the people around whom the story is written is not put God in a box. The name of the people around whom the story is written is wrestles with God. Jacob goes from grabbing uh, blessing after blessing after blessing to trying to get his hands on the blesser. And in the long night of wrestling, God renames him and says, you're not going to be identified by that craving thing inside you that wants to be filled up. That's not the center that you're going to live out of anymore. You're not going to be identified by that craving thing inside you that wants to be filled up. And it's in that moment that Jacob goes from grabbing and warring to being generous and reconciling so that he can send gifts to his brother on the plane, say, I have all I need, and they can be at peace. They can kiss each other as brothers again. It's in the moment where Jacob hears, you will not be defined by that craving thing inside you, that aching need to feel whole, maybe to feel like God, because we think that God must feel whole, God must feel protected, God must feel like God has whatever God wants or needs. You're not going to be named by that. You're not going to live out of that center anymore. And it's in, like, relocating his identity someplace else that Jacob goes from grabbing and warring to uh, generosity and reconciliation and if you and I um, will actually bear the image of, the world, of God in the world, if we will help the world look a little bit the way God wants it to look, we also might have to find a way to not live out of that center, not get named by our craving need. By the way, the needs can be real. They can be legitimate. It can be good to have needs met. But if we will get our hands on the world and make it beautiful the way God makes it beautiful, we might have to stop naming and identifying ourselves by that craving need inside. We might have to actually make peace with the long night of wrestling. Get your hands on God, not on some uh, substitute. Um, This, by the way, is why we talk about practices, not performances. Uh, Because there are actually ways of cooperating with God in the long night. There are ways of actually opening ourselves up to the renaming that God wants to do within us. Um, side note, uh, one of my experiences with Scripture is that almost always the things that take a minute in Scripture take a very long time in my life. So don't get confused about that, okay? Uh, the Scripture has an economy of words and narrative. 
where it squeezes entire lifetimes of spiritual transformation into moments. Don't let that confuse us. But it might be that in opening ourselves up to the dark night and the wrestling, um, that we actually go from identifying by that craving, aching place inside to identifying in something more divine, something given, something good. And in fact, what I'm really trying to say is this. It may be that we become most like God when we go to the places where we feel the least like God. Because it's when we go to the places where we feel the least like God that something starts to get transformed in us. So we stop projecting and we stop pretending and we stop performing and we stop distracting and we stop telling ourselves everything's gonna be fine, watch one more episode of Netflix and go to bed. We go to the places where we feel the least like God to discover that it may be there that God is beginning to make us like him a little bit. We actually turn toward that craving need. We face that terrifying uh, darkness inside which threatens us and says maybe there's nothing there. We stop trying to fill it, we stop trying to cover it. It's only after we sit with that for a while that we begin to get renamed. We begin to actually hear the divine voice that says you're not going to live out of that anymore, you're not going to live like that. Uh, Paul writes about this in a couple of places. We've already talked about Philippians. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not grasp that status as God. Watch that, right? So God doesn't concern God's self with experiencing the circumstances that God experiences, right? But let's all of that go to go to, to the place that feels the least like God. And there may not be a place that feels less like God than a cross or a tomb so that he could actually bear the image of God perfectly to the world, that we could be renamed and known. Elsewhere, Paul writes it like this in Galatians. Uh, I, am cr- I have been crucified with Christ, uh, which, by the way, is a good name for the long, dark night. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And if God will give God's self to you, you don't have to be named by that craving thing inside that feels empty or incomplete. Um, it's funny about Jacob's life. There's an irony and a tragedy to all of that grasping, and it's in a detail that I left out at the beginning of his story. So what is Jacob uh, grasping at the whole time? Essentially, he's grasping at superiority over his brother, right? Like, by defining himself over and against his brother, that's how he's going to tell himself he's okay. That's how he's going to tell himself that he has what he needs, right? That's sort of the struggle there, right? He's fighting to get himself positioned over his brother so he can feel like he's going to be okay. And here's the tragic irony of it. This is, um, this is spoken of Jacob's life the moment he's conceived. So I'm going back to that uh, story of them becoming pregnant. And we read that the babies were jostling within Rebecca, their mom, Remember, there's, there's no ultrasound. She doesn't know she's having twins yet, right? That's probably, uh, I can imagine, or maybe I can't imagine, that's probably like very physiologically confusing for a woman who's never heard of ultrasounds or doesn't know what's going on there, right? So the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. Listen, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this is um, a bizarre and ancient sort of way of describing something that really matters for these people, which is prosperity and longevity and security. But here's the thing. 
Before this man was ever born, God already said this was his. He already had it. Before Jacob had grasped anything, had reached for anything, before that craving need had acted itself out in his life in any way, God had already said, you're going to have this. This has already been spoken to be true of his life. Like he already had it. And I keep seeing us grasping and reaching. And the problem with it is we don't realize we already have the thing that we might actually be aching for or longing for. And it's not going to be satisfied by a circumstantial change or a status that we can acquire. What we already have is a God who has spoken over us and said, beloved son, beloved daughter, bearer of the image of God, something within you that is intrinsically, enduringly worthwhile. You don't have to fill it up or cover it up. You already have it. You don't have to fight for it. You already have it. So all of your grasping is only warring against what you already have that you don't know. That an inheritance has already been pronounced for you. That a blessing's already been spoken over you. You already have it. So stop fighting for it. Stop grasping. Stop reaching. And if you have to sit in the long, dark night to wake up to this promise and get a new name, do it. It's better than the grasping and it's better than the warring that we create. Because we're not here for that. We're here for generosity and reconciliation. We're here to actually look like God in the world a little bit, but we don't look like God when we are grasping and warring and the world breaks. And the whole time God is saying, I've already spoken this for you. You, beloved son, beloved daughter, a bearer of the image of God, I've already spoken this for you. You already have it. I was sitting with a friend at my dining room table a few years ago. Two of us were hanging out, and we were just kind of shooting the breeze. It was late that night, and over the years, um, my spidey sense has been developed. And for me, what that means is that in my particular line of work, um, you start to notice that because of the label I carry in my line of work, that sometimes people will start sort of um, using me to, to gain some sort of affirmation, some sort of religious endorsement, some sort of, they, they need the holy man to say that they're okay. And I don't, I don't actually believe that about me or that transaction, but I've noticed that this is a thing that happens um, quite frequently. Like, there's a, there's a need for the holy man to say I'm okay. And so we're talking, and I just sort of sense this energy. Um, and we're having like a normal conversation, but the, the way he's talking, he's sort, of, he's sort of grabbing status, and he's telling success stories, um, religious and otherwise. And just something inside, sort of uh, like a sixth sense thing, just says, oh, he's grabbing. He's grasping. And it's covering something that's afraid. And so uh, I, I decided to talk to him about him without telling him that I was talking to him about him. And so um, we're, t- we're talking about work. And so I use the context of work to say, you know, it's like, you know what I'm observing in my work right now? It's interesting. I say, um, I am learning that a lot of people who maybe like say they believe in God or whatever, like they opt out of life with God or they sort of, they preemptively exclude themselves from following Jesus because somewhere deep inside they're terrified that they don't have what it takes. And I saw this crack in his facade and then I saw like uh, water flowing from his eyes. And um, we began to talk about what I think I see here, which is like, you don't have to grab this for yourself. You don't have to climb a ladder with Jesus. You don't have to earn this divine word that has already been spoken over your life. You already have it. 
And by the way, I learned how to do that because it was done to me. <laughs> so uh, just like a year prior to that, um, I was working at this other church that I was working at at the time, and I go to pick up uh, a speaker that we had brought in to preach at our church. The speaker's name is William Paul Young, and he wrote a book called The Shack, which is not controversial at all. <laughs> kind of an inside joke. Christians are kind of crazy. Uh, he wrote what I think is a really beautiful and compelling book called The Shack. And so, uh, by the way, it sold like tens of millions of copies. So this is an impressive person that I'm picking up, and we go uh, to lunch before I take him to our church so we can get mic'd up and, and speak. And I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm, I'm using my stories and my body and my time with this guy to grab some kind of affirmation, to grab some kind of status. I want him to think I'm special. I want him to think I'm impressive. I want him to think I'm great. And he says to me, hey, you know, do you mind if I, I got a new story idea I'm working on. Do you mind if I bounce this off you? It's a book that I'm working on. By the way, this book has never come out. I've watched his career ever since. <laughs> and he says, it's about a young guy who works at a church. And then he goes on to describe a guy who is um, insecure and terrified and grabbing anything he can to tell himself he's okay. And he said, the thing that guy doesn't know is he's already okay because God loves him like crazy. God's with him. God has blessed him. God has called him a son. And if he would just stop doing that, he might find out it's true. I was like, shut up, Paul. <laughs> I don't like crying at Uptown Kitchen, you know? <laughs> uh, your need doesn't have to be your name. You don't have to be the one who grabs and makes war in the world. You could actually discover that divine center that God is cultivating within you, that divine image that God is resurrecting inside you, that is here to be generous and make peace in the world. You don't have to be named by your need. You are more than that. It's already been said. So um, I just want to let this word sit with you for a moment. And so I'll have the band come back up. And uh, this is a place to be a mess for the record. Um, so if you're in a bit of a dark night, if you want to stop pretending and stop grabbing, this is a great place to do that and a safe community uh, to walk with you in that. Um, but whatever God wants to do right now is, is really what we want. So we'll just let the band uh, lead our thoughts for a moment and create a little space before we wrap this up. Um, and now back to the sort of main matter at hand. Uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest. And he says what I've been trying to say in his way. He says it like this. Every sacrament, every Bible story, every church service, we'll get them soon, don't worry. Every sermon, every hymn, every bit of priesthood, ministry, or liturgy, he says is, but I think that's too optimistic, Ricky, uh, should be for one purpose, to allow you to experience your true self, who you are in God and who God is in you, and to live a generous life from that infinite source. We've talked about grasping and warring. We've talked about generosity and reconciliation. There are two other words uh, for generosity and reconciliation, and it's the ones that we part with every week. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.